morning and all of the services happening here, we, we thank you and praise you that, that uh, you will be lifted up in, in English and Swahili and Spanish and Nepali today here at Judson Baptist Church. And we pray for all of those meetings that you would be uh, powerfully present and that people would encounter you uh, in your word. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would guide us as we look at uh, some of the commandments that you've given us and, and the role that they play in our lives today as believers Lord, that you would impress in our hearts uh, how we can live lives that are pleasing to you and Lord, especially what your son Jesus has done for us uh, so that we can uh, be acceptable in your sight. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, so we were (laughs) on November 11th or something of 2020, um, about two-thirds of the way through looking at the sixth commandment. Um, what we do generally is read the question and then read the answer. And this is, of course, a study that we began of the London Baptist Confessions Catechism, um, the version put together by uh, Charles Hedden Spurgeon. We've been looking at it since 2018. Uh, so we've kind of gotten into a groove here. Let's together uh, read the question and answer for what is the sixth commandment Oh, yeah, I think it's like 55? Is it 55? 56th is what is the sixth commandment? No, what is forbidden the sixth commandment? Okay, so yeah, let's read uh, 55 and 56 together. Uh, 55, what is the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment is, thou shalt not murder. All right, and the next question, 56, what is forbidden in the sixth commandment? Sixth commandment forbids taking away our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatever tends to it. Whatever tends to it. That's the big one, right? Um, I thought it might be a good idea since we had gotten really into the weeds. I look back at what we were talking about uh, right about when we paused for those really long three weeks um, that look a lot like a year. Uh, What exactly we had been doing was just war theory, Um, getting into different traditions, uh, kind of caveats on when it's acceptable for a follower of Jesus to kill somebody. We were getting into really like ethics 101 stuff, which Penny was excited about. She's like, tell me when I can kill. Um, (laughs) She was in all tactical gear and everything. It was creepy. No, Um, but I thought it would be a good idea just to uh, rehearse kind of Jesus' approach to the law, because what we were doing was kind of pharisaical, and I take all the blame. (laughs) And it was what the church had done over the years with that commandment. Hold on, where's the line so we can get up to the line and and then worry that, you know, we won't, maybe we'll we'll take a few extra inches back, a step back or two, like the Pharisees put a hedge around the law, and we'll keep the law. And that is a very human way of approaching law and religion in general, but it's not the Jesus way. I, I think it was a valuable discussion. I think it was interesting. I don't think we were off base doing it, but I think a good way to recenter us into this study, especially since we have several commandments left, uh, would be just to go to Matthew chapter five. So if you have a Bible, flip over there. This is where Jesus starts talking to people who are quite certain they know the law and are keeping the law. And he talks to them about how they can adequately keep God's law so that they will find salvation via that law. 
Remember, the law was everything uh, in that world and to those religious leaders who were there uh, constantly listening to Jesus' teaching, trying to find something that they could use against him. Uh, someone read for me Matthew five twenty-one through 22. Two little verses. You have, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus tends to take these things further than we would want to, rather than saying, hold on a minute, what is the church taught about just war theory? Uh, he says, you've heard it said, and he says you've heard it, not you've read it, because the people that he's talking to generally did not have God's word in their homes. You know, the scrolls and such were way too uh, expensive for them to just pull out their copy every morning. They heard it, and they uh, committed a lot of it to memory, but you've heard the common people, the leaders, the teachers, all of you, that it is said, do not murder. You know that, but I say, now this is a really important little phrase in Jesus' teaching. Uh, it looks like this in the Greek of the New Testament. Ego de, oops, ego de lego. Not Lego my ego, that's something else. But ego, Alex is like, I've never even heard of that. Why is that funny? Lego my ego, what? You know that one? Yeah. Really? Is that still going? Yeah, oh, okay. Ego de Lego means, but I say. And that is the, the whole difference between the way the Pharisees approach the law and the way Jesus approaches it, because he takes it always into the heart of the individual. He's, he's going to take the outward act that you should avoid, and he's going to turn, ratchet up the law from seven or eight or wherever they had it to 11. And there he's going to say, if you've broken it in your heart, in your mind, with your eyes, with your words, you have broken it, and you're liable not to the Sanhedrin, the council, or whoever you're worried about, but you're, you're liable to hell, judgment, if you're trying to find salvation by keeping the law. So they all thought they knew the law, and six times Jesus comes in with this phrase, ego de lego, and brings it farther in and says, but I say to you. So he's, he's taking the law that they know, and he's not redefining it, but clarifying it. And people have sometimes looked at this phrase that comes up several times in the Sermon on the Mount and said, how does this square with Jesus' teaching that I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it? Now he seems to be coming in and just wholesale redefining it. No, what he, he's the original giver of this law. So the original giver is here saying, this is what I mean by it. You've kind of gotten off base by treating it as this list of do's and don'ts. And granted, that makes sense because it's presented largely as a list of do's and don'ts. But those things were pointing you into the heart. We're going to see that when we get to the 10th commandment, which is... Ooh, it's been a while. He's looking in his uh, catechism. Yeah. Is it, um, do not use my name in vain? No, that's the third one. Do not covet. 
Do not covet, right? So when you get to that, when you say, hold on a minute, he said don't steal, and that makes sense because there's a victim involved. If you steal your neighbor's thing and everyone's taking each other's stuff, society will crumble in Israel, so we need this law. But then he says, don't even covet. Don't go out and look at your neighbor's ox or farm implements or his wife or uh, anything and say, or his, oh, your neighbor has a Mustang, you're saying? <laughs> Don't be like Sean and look at the Mustang and, and be filled with this kind of avarice, this, this longing, because now you're committing the theft in your heart. So the law itself is already pointing us inward. The whole Old Testament continually does this. When the people think we can outwardly serve God, well, inwardly we serve idols, not necessarily idols in the forms of little stone guys, but idols in the form of wealth or gratification or whatever. Yeah. So like, is it so? Is it better to like, you know how like in the Bible it says, um, God, God knows our heart. Yeah. So is it like, would it be okay? So you know how like, uh, if if you get saved, right? Uh, would it be different or better if like, if in your heart you knew you were you knew you were saved and you were trying to do the right thing, but you still slipped up, but you asked for for forgiveness? Is that kind of what you're saying? I mean, certainly that's kind of where Jesus is going, because he's going to show us you are not able to keep that law apart you know, from your own power, or even once we're saved, we don't perfectly keep God's commandments. We do fall, we do stumble, we do. And so, yeah, that, exactly, that, that you have an advocate, you have God there with Christ standing as the mediator between you, so that when you fall, you're not condemned. Okay, this, this person is uh, now out these people are now no longer my covenant people. Sean is no longer. He looked at the Mustang one second too long. He's no longer my guy. Instead, you come to him, First John 1, 8 and 9. He's faithful and just when we confess our sins to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And yet we want to remember that this is about the heart. So as we're walking that journey, that, that uh, the narrow way, with Christ, it's not just what I do, what I say, but even uh, when we have communion today, we're going to have that uh, standard confessional prayer. Uh, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, starting with the thoughts. So, you know, it starts with the desires of our hearts. Jesus said that's where evil comes from, not what a man puts into his mouth, you know, eating unclean foods, but the desires that come out of our hearts, what comes out of a man, and, and the words that come out of our mouths, and then the actions as well. So if there's rage in your heart, there's murder in your heart. And that is a hard pill to swallow, I think. Um, I, Calvin's driven with me many times, every day of his life. I, I struggle sometimes with uh, anger, even, you know, bordering on hatred for things that wouldn't even warrant that you know, I, I confess it, I'm getting better. I'm not getting worse anyway. Um, but you have to be aware that this is all about your heart being renewed, not about you pruning the outside, not about you uh, washing the outside of the vessel. Uh, the King James Version, anyone got the King Jimmy here? No? Yeah? All right, what's the King James Version say in uh, Matthew 5, 22? Well, this is actually in... Okay, that's probably not going to have it. There's a, a little added... It's um, New King James Version. Yeah, it, it probably won't have this then because it's oh. the New King James. It's based on some newer, some newer texts. Some of the older Greek texts will have 
if anyone hates his brother without cause, then he is liable to judgment. And you go, oh, okay, well, <laughs> what an easy out. I hate my brother, but I've got great cause. So, um, and there are some Greek texts that have that. It's a really simple word, E-I-K and then Eta, which is like a, that kind of, so, so, A-K, <laughs> I, I got a cause, A-K. Um, that, that word found its way in there some, some time, and I think because the oldest, most reliable manuscripts don't have it, there must have been an angry monk copying these, these verses who popped it in. It's got to be the case. Yeah, Kim. That's what I have. Whoever is angry with, with his brother without cause. Without cause. And if you have, uh, even the ESV, there might be a text note. Is that the King James or the New King James, like what Akaya has? Like, uh, this was given to me by my grandfather. It should so. say on your, on the, right on the uh, spine of the book what, what version it is. King James version. King of James. Okay, yeah. So the without cause, it, it's not that the translators popped it in there. Earlier on, somebody put that word into the original Greek text, but it's an, it's an addition, it's an interpolation. I think we're always trying to do that. Add the little loophole that's going to allow me in my heart to do the thing I want to do just so long as I can kind of justify it. And this is going to be Jesus' struggle with people that their they're kind of default setting is, I've got to justify my sin. And he says, no, 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 no. Don't do that. I will justify you. Your sin is abhorrent. You can't justify it. We, we can't keep moving the goalpost, raising the limbo bar, lowering the... When we say lower the bar, I don't know what we're talking about. Hurdles? Uh, but, uh, you know, making it easier so that you can do this. So you can keep the law. Jesus is trying to show us we can't. And so I think that's really important to remember as we continue going through the rest of the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> Jesus' message about the law is it's not going to go well for you if you put your hope in it. You won't make it. You will, you'll hit all those hurdles. And then on one of the last few, you're going to just go crushing down and pop both your knees or something, and that's it. You're not going to make it to the finish line because these, these things are insurmountable. Paul then later on puts it this way. The law is a taskmaster, a tutor, a schoolmaster whose goal is not to teach you the content of the Ten Commandments so that you've mastered it and then give you an A. Rather, the goal of this, this person is to use the law as the curriculum to get you to the foot of the cross, to show you you are not able to keep God's commandments. You are never going to be able to do it. Israel couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Good grief. David couldn't do it for 20 minutes. He needed salvation. He needed forgiveness. You need salvation. You need forgiveness. There's no way you're going to keep this law perfectly. Uh, James tells us if you break one of these commandments, may as well have broken them all. And at the end of the day, if we interpret them the way that Jesus interprets them here, you've broken them all anyway. When, when I used to do um, kind of street evangelism, uh, I did this a lot during my field ministry with my, my buddy Mike Gohm. He, you've probably met him. He was here to preach a few times. Um, really, really big guy. Really kind big guy. We would go up to people and we would just ask them, do you think you're going to heaven? And we'd have a camera, video camera. Sometimes we wouldn't even be filming. Uh, but we'd have it because it made people want to talk to you. Yeah, you'd have a microphone and be like, oh, you want to be in the news or something? We'd be like, no, 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 we're just making stuff. And they'd go, oh, okay. This is before everyone had a camera, you know, and this is in the, the audience. And uh, almost everyone would say yes. And you'd say, why? 
And their response would usually be like, well, and they'd start doing this kind of loophole hedging the beds thing, like, I'm not perfect, but I haven't killed anybody. And sometimes they'd add, and I haven't robbed any banks, because you know how much Jesus talked about robbing banks. So then you'd say, hold on. Jesus said if you've committed, or if you've, if you've harbored hatred in your heart, or been very, very angry and full of rage, that's murder. Have you ever done that? And then you'd see the cracks begin to form in this lattice work of law keeping that they were creating for themselves. Now, can you be angry without sinning? Yes. Right, we know that for a fact because Jesus, Jesus got angry. Yeah, a number of times. Jesus was obviously angry when he drove the temple, uh, cleared the temple of the, the money changers. He was obviously angry when he gives the seven woes. Woe to you, creatures of the law and Pharisees. I think he's angry when he sees the system that will take the last two pennies from this lady uh, and not acknowledge it. Yeah. When Moses got angry, was that a sin? Because he broke the, um, the rock. Seems to have been, right? Yeah, because that then limits Moses' ability to go into the promised land. So, yeah, it seems that God wasn't happy with him for, for that level of, of anger. Um, it, and I think that illustrates that you're, you're always in dangerous ground, right, when you get angry. Like you say, I, I can get angry because Jesus was angry, and therefore there's righteous, and there is righteous anger, absolutely. Jesus got angry at hypocrisy. He got angry at oppression of uh, people who were marginalized and a system that was merciless. He got angry in, in kind of broader ways, not at, you know, I can't stand this guy Judah and I'm mad at him and I hate him. Uh, in fact, people often point out that Jesus says in this text that we just read, if anyone says, you fool, uh, it's translated, you fool, then he's in danger of hellfire. And then there are passages where Jesus says, you blind guides, you fools. And they say, well, he's a hypocrite. He's breaking his own rules. No, Jesus is not saying of any individual, you are a fool. And we'll get into what that means momentarily. He's looking at a, a system built on foolishness and saying everyone who buys into this and puts their eggs in this basket is being foolish. That's what the wisdom literature does, the book of Proverbs, etc. It's, it's the correct way to be angry and fed up with an evil system that has no mercy uh, rather than directing your anger and your hatred at an individual person who bears God's image. So it's, it's possible to be angry without sinning, but not, I think, to harbor anger in your heart, which is what this is talking about. Parking it in your heart and kind of just uh, tending it and letting it be there. Remember, we were just reading Ephesians uh, for a year and change. We were doing it uh, in, in our main service, a study of Ephesians. Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. It's possible. Do not let the sun go down on your anger is the very next words. Why? Because if you stay angry, what's the next verse say? Does anyone remember? You give somebody a something. You let the sun go down on your anger and you give the devil a foothold. Like a little spot to kind of get his hoof in there. And now you're, you're in trouble. Sin is going to follow up that anger as long as we've lodged it in our hearts. Luther famously said, I'm never more righteous than when I am just a little angry. And I've always loved that, especially when I was a younger man, you know, uh, 20 years ago, uh, I would go, yeah, yeah, you got to be a little angry all the time. And you look at Luther's life 
And there are times when he's a little angry and the here I stand, I can do no other. You know, that, that defiance gives us the Protestant Reformation. It is wonderful. Um, you think of the time when, when he took the body of the, the mentally troubled young boy who committed suicide. The church says this, this kid cannot be buried in a, uh, given a Christian funeral, buried in a, in a Christian graveyard. And he's like, I dare you to stop me. Goes and buries him and gives him a Christian funeral because of compassion. Great, there's some anger against an unjust system. But then look at him later on in life and you say, you were, you were angry a little too long. Uh, it starts to come out in weird, like, misogynistic, anti-Semitic rants and things. And you go, dude, you, you need to give this anger to God because you're in danger of undoing a lot of the good that you did. It, it's dangerous. It's like being tempted. That's not sinful to be tempted. We know that because Jesus was tempted. So when you're tempted, don't let the enemy say, oh, you may as well just do it now. You've already sinned. No, you haven't. But to remain continually in a state of temptation, like in a place where you're tempted with people who are tempting, uh, in a situation that tempts you to sin is dangerous and you're going to fall. Or or, um, another example would be doubt. Doubt is not sin. To doubt something, but to get comfortable in doubt and kind of harbor that in your heart and just say, this is my thing. I'm the doubt guy rather than the faith guy. Jesus says, stop uh, doubting and believe to Thomas. And, and of course, the word is more, do not dwell in unbelief, but believe. We can't let some of these things become our home. And one of those things is anger. It's not a sin to be angry justly, but it's dangerous because our hearts are deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. So cherishing it in our heart, just like cherishing temptation or doubt or many other things is going to lead to uh, essentially murder. Yes, sir. I think that also anger, you know, it can be used like um, almost like um, a drug. Like when you get really angry, it kind of can get a little exciting because mm. sometimes I catch myself ranting and raving at home about something or somebody and mm. it's going on and on. It's like, why am I doing this so much? It's some, something about it is attractive, you know? Feels good. Yeah, well, you're releasing the right chemicals in your brains that, yeah, you're, yeah, can become yeah. almost comforting. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I've 100% uh, experienced that. Yeah. Unrighteous anger. I think so. Yeah. And, and the question is, how do you know when you've gone from one into the other? And I think you have to ask, first of all, what is grieving me here? Is it uh, something on my behalf or am I thinking of something from God's point of view? Um, I think the other thing is, what are the words like you say? Jesus talks about out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what's in my heart right now? When I get really, really angry, would you have to bleep me if you put what I'm saying on like network TV? Well, they hardly bleep anything anymore, so it'd have to be really bad. Um, would, can I honor God when I'm in this state right now with what I say, with what I'm doing, with what I think? Or do I need to repent of this? Now, he takes it immediately to our words, and I think that is a good gauge because, again, Jesus says that's, you know, it's, it's flowing up out of your heart. So I remember one time in high school, I went off on this lady that was uh, teaching us like some weird dance thing in, in our choir class. And I'm like, I'm not doing this. This is weird, and you're weird, and I hate this, and this doesn't require any talent. And I, you know, I, I, yeah, I was a, a bit of a jerk uh, in my teen years. And afterward, I went up to her. I felt really bad. The Holy Spirit was convicting me. I was a believer. And I said, you know, I'm so sorry. That wasn't me. 
And now I think back on that because it was such a strange thing to say. Obviously, that was me. Those are the things that were in my heart. I know that because they came out of my mouth. I should have said, that was me, but I'm repenting of that. And, and God is, is making me into a new person. He's renewing my mind. He's changing me. And so forgive me for who I've been, who God is making me is, is going to be better. But Jesus takes us then to this word in the Hebrew, raka. Um, oh, that's, you won't know if I get it wrong. Um, R-A-K-A, stop, is your, your English, raka. If anyone says raka, now, who here has not gotten really angry at someone, whether driving or a neighbor or in a political dispute, and said, raka? I mean, we've all been there. We've all done <laughs> What does it mean? Does anyone know what it means? This is a, a pretty uh, important Hebrew word, I guess. Yeah? Doesn't mean damned? No, but you're on the right track. At the, at the core, the word means empty, right? So... It would be kind of like empty head, empty brain, empty, you're just empty of value. Maybe like saying you're worthless, um, a nobody, a zero. I've, I've, I've heard people say that. You say something, Galvin? <laughs> I'm sorry, in joke. Um, in the Greek, Jesus then takes us to a word, moros. Right? You ever said that one? Right? You, you, you hear that and you, you don't even need to know how to uh, start parsing Greek. Moros, moru, moro, moron. Yep. Uh, and I, oh my gosh, that's been a go-to for me for a long time. You cut me off in traffic. It might be under my breath. It might be out loud. It might be just in my head and in my heart, but moron. Yeah. Okay. Now, what does that mean? Same thing. Very much the same thing. That's that's the thing, right? I'm angry, but it's not without cause. I've I've definitely I don't even like the these and thous, but I'm full on KJV only because that gives me the loophole out of this. <laughs> it's not without cause. No, with or without cause, these are words that devalue someone made in God's image and say, when God made you, He made an empty, useless, worthless thing, and we know that that is not true. And we know that we've all done something probably in the last 24 hours that some other third-party observer could look at us and say, you moron. And yet, God loves us. How do we not extend that grace to this other person who's, who's maybe even, yeah, being a little moronic? The scary part is that's the same, essentially, if I'm trying to clear the bar by keeping the law as murdering that person. And when you see how road rage takes place, you, you realize that, that my besetting sin of getting really angry when I'm driving, the lovely thing about being a local pastor is you got to do it all in your head. You can't have big altercations that get captured and uploaded to, you know, World Star or whatever, because that's it. You're, you're done. You're, you're that pastor. But even in my head, it doesn't matter because I've now committed that murder. There's murder in my heart. So when, later on, if we were trying to weasel out of this with the without cause, just flip over to 1 John 3.15, when John quotes Jesus, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. If you're taking notes, write that passage down. 1 John 
I think there's a reason we call it character assassination when you start spreading things about someone to try and hurt them. That is now the murder in your heart coming out of your mouth, which is the natural progression of whatever's in your heart. And it can be murderous. It can have a horrible effect. And even if you're not liable for libel or whatever in a, you know, I can prove that it's based in truth, et cetera, et cetera. From God's point of view, if it comes out of this place of, of murder, the sixth commandment has been broken. Um, you might think you're safe here, like usually people do when we get to the sixth commandment. I don't call people moron. I don't insult people for their intelligence. I would only say something about someone if they had a bad character. I am worried about integrity. And so if I'm watching the news, some guy gets up there and starts spouting something nonsensical, I might say, this guy's an idiot, or this guy's worthless. In Hebraic thought, fool was more a moral term than an intelligence-based one. When you read the book of Proverbs and it talks about how the fool acts, nine times out of 10, it's not he's being stupid, it's he's being immoral, corruptible, he's easily taken off the straight path and going down these side alleys with Lady Folly. So, raka, moras, we're talking about moral intelligence uh, in, the, in the Bible. Jesus is describing someone, looking at someone else, assessing them based on their life or their words or some other outward thing and saying, this person is, is worthless, I declare it. Standing in stark contrast to Jesus who says, ah, but I'm going to die for them. That, that is the problem with the heart murder. Empty character being the assessment doesn't, doesn't get us out of it. The idea of throwing people away, which our culture encourages more and more. Someone who's inconvenient or embarrassing or stupid or screws up too many times, throw them out, or I don't think that this is even an active term anymore, uh, but cancel them. Uh, the notion is still out there. You're, you're no longer, you're, you're worthless. So you're just a non-entity. Persona non grata. When we look at the story of the Bible, creation, all is good. Everything's perfect, right? Every time God creates something, he says, this is good. It's tov, which is a very round, well-rounded Hebrew word of it. The whole thing is just great. And then he gets to the end and he creates everything, including people in his image. This is tov ma'ov, super, super good. I love this place, what I've done with it, these people. I, I love my creation. And then we through sin, fracture that, that shalom, that, that goodness. And then he immediately says, well, it's so good, I'm going to set about restoring it, redeeming these people. And not just redeeming the people, but redeeming all of creation. Look at the end of the story. Everything is redeemed that was fractured by sin. So the first thing after we introduce sin and the fall happens, what do we immediately start doing? Devaluing each other, Right? I think it begins with, hey, did you eat of that tree? And Adam says, woman made me. Right. <laughs> yeah, shouldn't have made her. Bad move. Uh, she's like, now nah, was the snake. The snake's like, mm, can't even do this. No shoulders. So that, that's our immediate move. And within a generation, it goes from that passing blame to actual murder. Right? So Cain kills Abel 
He's so got so much anger and hatred in his heart, it spills out not just in words but in action, and, and he tries to hide it, and undoubtedly tried to justify it because he was so full of anger. But when mankind is redeemed, we're now a redeemed people as the church of Christ. Our eyes are opened to seeing the image of God in everyone. That is, I think, a lost art. I think this may be the thing the church really needs to focus on in the next generation is there was a time, you know, with the 80s and the moral majority and of a very politicized church where the culture war was front and center and that kind of seemed to have taken a back seat. And I had a great hope that we were maybe moving on to, hey, it's the gospel. Let's preach the gospel. This is what the church has to offer. I sort of see us sliding back into this us and them pointing at each other, condemning each other, raka, which, yeah, means empty. But ultimately, I think like you say, means, well, you're damned because of your worthlessness. I think we need to really rediscover the fact that everyone has the image of God. Assuming they're human, they are made in his image. Jesus looked at the people who were like a sheep without a shepherd, which means they were acting in ways that were foolish. They were acting in ways that were wicked. They were doubling down on their sin. And instead of being filled with rage, he was moved with compassion. Every time, because they were like sheep without shepherds, moved with compassion. That's got to be our prayer for the church now. When we think about the sixth commandment and how we as people whose sins have been forgiven keep this commandment, it's got to be seeing the image of God in every person. I think this is one of the best prayers uh, I've ever prayed in an extended way is, Lord, help me see people through your eyes. And I used to pray that every day and somehow got out of the, the habit of it. I want to do that again. Um, you know, at the beginning of a day, everyone I encounter, let me see them through Jesus' eyes. I think a, a variety is, we're going to talk about the seventh commandment next, naturally, because it comes next. Uh, and Jesus says of that one, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if any man looks at a woman uh, with lust, he's committed adultery in his heart. If you're seeing someone with Jesus' eyes, you're going to lust after them? If you're seeing someone with Jesus' eyes and see the image of God, are you going to hate them? Are you going to steal from them? Are you going to covet what they want? So, so I think rediscovering that is really core to this heart thing, this heart direction that Jesus gives us uh, for kind of the grid, the lens through which we view the law and how it affects us. Uh, the, you keep reading the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, this devaluing of each other. It's kind of front and center at the core of the downward spiral of mankind, right? I mean, from Babel to Sodom and Gomorrah to David on his palace roof to the the high priest in the temple saying, it's better that we kill this guy so that everybody might live, uh, deciding whose worth is what rather than letting God say, you're all made in my image becomes sort of a, a center point of our sinful worldview. Oswald Chambers wrote this, and I, every time I read it, I feel very inadequate as a Christian. I know that God has altered me because if that had happened to me before, I should have been sour and irritable and sarcastic and spiteful. But now there is a well of sweetness in me that I know never came from myself. 
Uh, that here, that had happened to me. It doesn't matter what it was. It was something that normally would have made him lash out a little bit. Quick type that really cutting comment uh, on Facebook or whatever the kids are using now. Um, I read that and I go, there are still an awful lot of things that can draw out of me something sour and irritable and sarcastic and spiteful. But the promise of the gospel is that God is continually working in us, in our hearts, and that we'll see progress, that more often we will see some sweetness and a well of love and acknowledging the, the image of God and the other person that we know doesn't come from us because we've seen what comes out of us, that he's still working on us. And then, of course, Jesus gets to, you have heard it said, love your friends and hate your enemies, but I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's as he's ramping up toward be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Uh, where, where he really breaks everybody's uh, desire to think they can keep the law. Um, love your enemies. How can you possibly love your enemies? Acknowledging that they have the image of God and that harboring hatred against them is therefore a sin not just against them, but against the God who made them. This is insanely difficult stuff. And if we had to keep it and clear this hurdle and jump through this hoop in order to attain salvation, we never would get there. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. But because it's not live like this in order to be saved, but rather be saved so that you can more and more live like this, we still see progress. We still see sanctification. We still have hope that God's not done with us. That, that old Baptist uh, children's song, he's still working on me. You know that one? It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun. No. Yeah, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. There you go. How loving and faithful he must be. He's still working on me. Yeah, great, great song. Um, and kind of the great hope we have as Christians when we read, when we study these commandments. So I, just, I wanted to kind of do that overview to kind of ramp us back into this from a gospel point of view rather from, than from what we were kind of doing, which was parsing and dividing and, and, and laying out what's allowed and what's not. Um, I, I think those things, again, are helpful as a exercise and, and as a reminder that that the world is messy this sin fractured world is it's difficult to honor god in and there are going to be times when you go it's not it's completely black and white and i got to figure out how what's the best option but at the end of the day the best option is to not harbor hatred in our hearts to not let that hatred then overflow out of our mouths as spiteful words or as actions or as inaction that's, that's the rest of that confession prayer. We sin against you in thought, word, and deed by what we've done and by what we've left undone. So you can, because of spite or anger or hatred, not help someone and say, well, I didn't hurt them. Again, there's the justification. Uh, but Jesus was moved by compassion when he saw a sinful people wandering around like sheep without a shepherd, and he did help them. He, he, he even loved his enemies. And what are some examples of Jesus doing that? Showing his love for his enemies, showing his, his amazing mercy and, and compassion. Oh. Yeah. Um, you know how he had, like, how you mentioned Judas? Uh-huh. Um, 
Oh, I have another one. You know how he died on the cross, right? And there was two men beside him? Yeah. Uh, one of them, even though they were both sinners, one of them wanted to, uh, one of them wanted to change his life. And so Jesus uh, said that you would come with me when I go to this place. And then the other didn't want to, so did he go to hell? Was yeah, that it, it seems like it. But yeah, you're right. So they're both kind of heaping insults on him, and then one of them uh, repents and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Another example, I think, right before that, when Jesus is being nailed to the cross, what does he say? Forgive them. They don't know what they do. If ever there was a time when you could say, I think this is justified anger. I think I can probably burn this bridge. It's the guys that are nailing you to the cross in the last hours of your life. And yet Jesus says out loud, so they'll hear him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Uh, probably nine times out of ten when someone has wronged us, I mean, they know what they do, but they don't. But they don't. You know, and, and there's, there's a grace that we see the greatest saints extending and, and the kind of sweetness that I know did not come from myself, that Oswald Chambers experienced, that is so much more rewarding than living our lives constantly uh, in a, a cycle of you wrong me, I wrong you, you snub me, I snub you harder kind of situation. Is that like, you know how Jesus has said, forgive them for they know not what they do? Mm-hmm. You know how people are angry and they say, Lord have mercy on your soul? Is that like a bad way of saying it or is that the same? Because the they're saying it out of spite. Yeah, I guess it depends on the heart. Um, yeah, right, there are a lot, probably a lot of things we could say. And depending on what our heart is when we say it, it could either be a good thing or a, or a bad thing. I remember watching Little House on the Prairie as a kid. And uh, uh, Jonathan, no, what was his name? Mr. Edwards said, uh, thank God. And I said, oh, he said God. And my mom was like, that's okay. He's really thanking God. And then later that night, she's like, it's, we're having uh, super meat and potato pie, which was my favorite dinner. I said, thank God. And my dad was like, hey. And I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> What's the context? What's the heart? I think I really was thanking God for that super meat and potato pie. But uh, what time is it? Have we time to um, introduce the seventh commandment? No, we don't. Okay. Um, all right. Anyone have any other thoughts on uh, murder and... Uh, what it looks like in the, the heart of a, a believer to reject harboring hatred and, and instead, yeah. So like, how do you, um, what's the best way, like, uh, I know you said to repent once you feel angry, but like, what's the, what's, what's another, like, is there a way to like stop yourself from getting angry or like too angry? Mm. Yeah, that's a question I ask often. Um, I, I, I think that what Jesus tells us in one of his parables has been the most helpful for me, which is he tells this parable about uh, the, the guy who owes the king. He's a servant, and he owes the king like the equivalent of $100 million or something. Somehow he got so deeply in debt, there's no way he's going to be able to pay it off. Comes to the king's attention, and the king summons him, and he says, you owe me the money, you've got to pay me now, or I'm going to throw you in the, in the dungeon, and then you can not get out until you pay me the money. And the guy throws himself at the feet of the king and he's like, I got kids, I'm so sorry, there's no way I can do it, but have mercy on me. The king is moved with compassion. Obviously, this is the, the picture for us of God and says, I forgive your debt. The guy gets up, 
feeling on top of the world. He's so excited. He walks out the palace door, bumps into a guy who owes him like 40 shecks, and he says, wait a minute. This is why I'm in such a bad place. I almost just got thrown in a dungeon because people who owe me money haven't paid me back. And he runs over and he starts choking the guy. And I am convinced this is Jesus being funny. Like, what an overreaction. You owe me 20 bucks and I'm choking you. And so the guards break him up. And one of them knows what just happened with the debt. And he goes and he tells the king, that guy you just forgave, that 100 million, he saw a guy who owed him 20 bucks. He started choking him. And, and he says, okay, throw him in the dungeon. This guy isn't worthy of the forgiveness I've extended. And Jesus essentially is saying, you've been forgiven, you know, this billion dollar debt you could never pay. And to remind ourselves of that, I think will fill us with more of a heart of gratitude when I'm tempted myself to be angry with someone. And I think of how small, in fact, we even call these things slights, right? Oh, I get angry about slights. Well, they're called slight because they're, they're slights. They're little. They're, they're compared to what I've done to God and what he's forgiven me. I crucified his son. My sins did. And he's forgiven me. Okay, I, I think I can probably forgive this $20 debt. Um, and that, that to me is always a, a bit of a, a mind uh, blow and a gut check. Uh, and, and also there's the notion of, you know, the woman washing Jesus' feet. And he says, whoever's been forgiven much, loves much. She's been forgiven so much, she loves me so much, you guys couldn't get it because you don't understand the depth of your sin. I see what you're saying. So, like, basically what you're saying is, like, a way, like, another way for us not to get angry and and to forgive others is to be like, well, God, he forgave me. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Exactly that, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's the kind of the answer to our petty anger and rage that, that the gospel has is uh, to become more like Christ means to be willing to forgive, even to the point of I'm being nailed to a cross right now. Um, that's, that's the goal. Uh, we all fall short of it all the time. There are people who don't get angry and shout moron or, or honk their horn when they're driving, but who silently, you know, you know, maybe they've not talked to their sister in two and a half years because they're waiting for her to, you know, to apologize to me because it was her, not, not me, who was in the wrong. And, and to have a heart that's truly understanding the nature of the forgiveness we've received is going to mean not, not getting caught up in that kind of stuff, that murder that can, that can really get lodged in our hearts. Well, that's uh, the sixth commandment. Um, I think we actually had about four weeks with it before we, we stopped for a while. Um, and, and so I think that's a, a sufficient treatment of it. Unless uh, you think of something else during this week you want to bring up uh, before we get to the seventh commandment next time. Um, let's go to the Lord now in prayer and ask him to help uh, apply these things into our hearts and our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the commandments that we have. We thank you especially that they are meant to push us to the foot of the cross. Lord, they push us hard. They shove us and we land on our knees and on our face and knowing that we're broken by our own sin and undone by it, Lord. And then when we look up at the cross, we see that you have taken those of us who are broken by our sin, forgiven us, taken the burden off our back, washed us clean and, and made us new and, and Lord, clothed us with spotless linen and placed us on the, the narrow road to, to now being made new walk in your footsteps and, and love as you have loved and forgive as you have forgiven. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to keep these laws, particularly this sixth commandment this week, 
uh, in our hearts as well as in our mouths with what we say and in our lives with what we do. Lord, that by what we think and say and do what we fail to do, Lord, we would not grieve you uh, and we would not fail to see that everyone around us is made in the image of God, that everyone around us is as worthy of forgiveness as we are, and Lord, that we would be filled with kindness and compassion and mercy and grace. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.